Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, a psychotherapist and improviser, and I have a really neat guest on today all the way from California, and his name is Ken Adams. Hi, Ken. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you because I've seen your name many, many times, and now I can put a face to it. So some of you may recognize Ken's uh, name uh, because he authored something called The Story Spine. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. So hold on to your seats, everybody. We'll get there eventually. But it's a marvelous thing that I teach with my classes for people with Parkinson's improv, and it's a great tool to use for anybody. So, Ken, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, what part of Brooklyn? I grew up in a neighborhood called Midwood. The main intersections were Kings Highway and Ocean Avenue, not very, very far from Midwood High School. Wow. A lot of people went to school in Brooklyn, and um, it's changed a bit since you grew up there, I think, hasn't it? Oh, it has. I've been out here in California for about 22 years now. And so every time I go back to visit Brooklyn, I'm shocked at how different it is. Neighborhoods that did not exist when I was there are very popular now. And they all have initial names that I don't recognize when people refer to them. Well, Park Slope is still Park Slope, or do they call it P.S.? Yeah, Park Slope. In fact, that's where I lived. I didn't grow up there as a kid. I grew up in Midwood. Um, but when I moved out of my mom's house at 23 or 24, I moved right into Park Slope with a bunch of folks I went to school with. And we lived there for 10 years. Wow. Where did you go to school? A couple of different places before someone let me graduate. I started at SUNY Binghamton, State University of New York, up in Binghamton, New York. I spent just two years there. Then I spent a year at Brooklyn College. And then finally, I graduated from the uh, NYU's Tisch School of the Art Musical Theater Program. That's marvelous. I got my MSW at NYU, but that is a fabulous program. I just love it. I wish I had known about improvising when I was uh, still there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Somebody's trying to get in my space. I don't know how. I turned off the notification, so excuse it. Um, anyway, uh, um, so I don't think you're old enough to remember when they used to do doo-wop on the streets of Brooklyn, are you? Uh, well, I don't know. I'll tell you, I am 56 years old. Does that make me old enough? Hmm, I think you got to be closer to my age, 105. <laughs> um, I don't know. Did, were people still doing doo-wop? Uh, I, I don't really remember anybody doing that. What kind of music did you like when you were a kid? Well, I was always into Broadway show tunes. That was always my thing. So I grew up listening to these wonderful old uh, recordings of um, Mame and 42nd Street, all, all of the old classics. And then uh, when I was uh, starting to choose my own, my... Uh, my big shows around the high school age, I loved La Caja Fall and uh -huh. the Rocky Horror Show and, um, oh gosh, um, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, and so I would listen to those in, in rotating loop for many, many years in a row. Oh, that's wonderful. I grew up in uh, a town uh, called North Caldwell, about 18 miles from Manhattan. So when I was a kid, I got to see the original Sound of Music. That's how old I am. Oh and uh, Les Mis and Cats and so many wonderful shows. And I always wanted to be an actor and a singer. 
Yeah. Well, now I'm an improviser, so that's just as good. So, I think so. Um, did you sing too? Did you sing at all in high school? No, no, no. Um, I could never sing. I I went to NYU's Tisch graduate program. It was called the musical theater program, but it was not a performing program. It was a writing program. So mm -hmm. I was in the program as a book writer and a lyricist, and that was my early passion. I always enjoyed acting for sure, but my early passion was playwriting. Absolutely. And what have you written? Well, I've written a number of plays. I've written about a dozen plays, none of which would be commercially uh, successful enough for anybody to know of them. But um, I, they're out there in my drawer in the room over here. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I've had several productions in small community theaters over the years. You know, I just love that taking a play and making it improvised. Is that what you do? No, no, no. Back in the day, I would actually write plays. I was a playwright. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, that's what I studied in school. That's what I studied at NYU, writing for the musical theater, writing plays. I have a MFA from NYU's playwriting program. Um, so that was that. And it was during my second year of my graduate program at NYU that I started working with what was then called Theater Sports New York, which is now a theater company called Freestyle Repertory Theater under the direction of Laura Livingston and Michael Durkin. And that's where I learned to improvise. Oh, that's fantastic. And were you as addicted as I was when I started? Yeah, right from the very beginning. Uh, I mentioned that I went to a couple of colleges. So I started off in Binghamton. I didn't know anything about improvisation. Back then, improvisation wasn't really a thing. It's not like high schools and colleges had improv teams the way it's so ubiquitous now. It wasn't really a thing at all. Um, so I was just studying acting and playwriting. And then I went for one year to Brooklyn College. And when I was at Brooklyn College, I met a woman named Yvonne Opfer was her name back then. Now it's Yvonne Coney Bear, a very talented director and improviser. And she was working with this nascent group in New York that was starting to perform theater sports in Manhattan. And she was running some improv workshops during lunchtime on the Brooklyn College campus. So having nothing better to do, I just started taking them, fell in love with it right away. And, and playwriting was still my chosen path for a while, but it was very clear that as the years went on, improvisation was becoming more of the passion. Absolutely. But don't you teach or, or aren't your performances based on a play? Am I getting that right? Now I'm the artistic director of a company called Synergy Theater. We're out here in California and we perform full length improvised plays. So we perform our plays in the style of famous playwrights and in different genres. Right. Like uh, this week on Thursday, we're about to open up Spontaneous Hitchcock, which is a full length wow. improvised play in the style of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. So our approach is based on my understanding of dramatic structure, but we, we don't write anything and then perform it. It's all improvised based on our study of the style or the genre. So it's not really like story theater, which Paul Sills developed then. It's something, I, I wish it was online so I could see it. Um, there, there are some things online, but not exactly what we do in the live theater. Over COVID, like everybody else, we started performing online. So we have a Synergy Theater YouTube channel called Synergy Theater. If anybody wants to go there, you'll see dozens and dozens of work online that we did during the COVID lockdown. But uh, those were formats that we invented specifically to be done on Zoom. So it's not quite what we do on stage, but it's still us doing our thing. 
It's still brilliant. I just love it. Oh, I just you. love it. Now, let's go back till when you were like six and seven years old. Were you enthralled with theater back then or when did? Um, yes, I was. I, I grew up in New York, so and I was lucky enough to have a mom who would take me to the theater. You know, yeah. we, we didn't have a ton of money, so it's not like we went into Manhattan and, and went to Broadway theater very frequently, but a number of crucial times we did. And I do remember when I, when I was six, seven, eight, I was already very passionate about writing. And so I would write little scripts and uh, I dream about, you know, uh, writing for TV uh, and things and acting it out in my bedroom, all of that type of stuff. But I do remember when I was, oh gosh, I don't know, 10 or 11, the, the, the first play that I remember my mom taking me to see that really just changed my life and made me realize this is what I wanted to spend my time doing was the original production of Dracula starring Frank Langella on Broadway yes. back in the 70s. Yes. <laughs> and that was so stunning. Like to this day, I remember those images and those scenes so vividly. Um, and, and that was it. You know, after that, I was dedicated to the theater. And your mom supported it, your family supported it? Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, I don't imagine that my mother ever really thought at that age I would, I would grow up and be devoting my life to it. But she was always one of those people who would just support any interest I had and allow me to explore it. And honestly, I didn't have a lot outside of writing and theater, even from a very early age. Those were my things, uh, with the exception of the Boy Scouts. I was a tremendous... A uh, fan of the Boy Scouts, and I spent all of my childhood and early adulthood um, in the Scouts. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And you go upstate New York, probably to some places in the Catskills or Woodstock or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent every summer from the age of like 14, uh, 13 to 18 at 10 Mile River Scout Camp in Narrowsburg, New York, not yeah. far from the Catskills. Yeah. Yeah, that is great. Well, so you get into improv. And because you wanted to make a lot of money, right? Ah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, when I was in high school, um, I, I was lucky enough to be in the acting program at Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn. And my acting teacher that I studied with for four years there was this wonderful gentleman named Scott Martin, who I've, I've been blessed to hook up with again on Facebook over the past number of years. So. Uh, we're friends again. That was a thing you never thought of back when we were in high school that you would ever be able to track down and keep in touch with all of these wonderful right. people you're meeting. Yeah. Right. Uh, but he and I are Facebook friends now. But anyway, he taught me like every, everything I know about theater. There are two people I attribute everything I know to. One of them is Scott Martin, who taught me everything I know about theater. And then Laura Livingston, the artistic director of Freestyle Rep in New York, where I started performing, who taught me everything I know about improvisation. And one of the earliest things I remember Scott Martin saying when I was in high school, you know, 13, 14, um, he, he said that if, if you love the theater, you can, you can probably find a way to have a career in it. But if your motivation is making money, then you're doing the wrong thing. Not that you can't make money in theater, but if that's the only thing attracting you to it, then you should look elsewhere. And he really made me understand that being a famous actor at that time, you know, in high school, it was all about acting. So he made me understand that being a famous actor and being a successful working actor are not the same thing at all. And that there are thousands of people working every day in the theater in wonderful 
prestigious theaters all over the world that you will never hear of. But they go out there every day and they do their job and they are actors and they're not famous and they're not rich, but they are actors. So if that's your passion, go for it. But if making money is your passion, you, you, you might be very disappointed. Yeah, you have to have the passion and then the commitment. It's like a musical improv. I love musical improv and I don't have a great singing voice, but I commit to it 110%, you know, yeah. and it's that commitment to, you know, and there's no mistakes, of course. Now, were you, were your teachers at all influenced by either Keith Johnstone or um, I kind of associate Keith Johnstone with comedy sports for some reason. And then, of course, Viola Spolin. Yeah. Well, when I was in high school, actually, one of the very first shows I did that really started bringing improvisation into my life, although I didn't know it at the time, was Scott Martin directed a production of Story Theater by Paul Sills, who is uh, Viola Spolin's son. And that, like you mentioned before, was a work that, is, that was scripted when they did it on Broadway, but developed through improvisation. Um, he probably explained all of that at the time, but it must have floated off because I never really quite understood that. But in retrospect, I can say that was my first experience with the world of improvisation. But it was when I started working with Laura Livingston at Theater Sports New York and Freestyle Repertory Theater that uh, I was truly taught how to improvise. And theater, uh, Keith Johnstone is theater sports, not comedy sports. So those, those are very similar, but different things. So um, my... My education in improvisation was from the Johnstonian School of Improv, which I learned from Laura Livingston. Uh, did you ever take classes with Keith himself? I only took one weekend workshop, and that was not back in that day. But many, many years later, after I had moved out to California, I started, um, uh, I had some friends in Bats, Bay Area Theater Sports, which is like right. the, you know, the California, the uh, San Francisco version of theater sports. And they were doing a weekend workshop. This was already like 20 years ago. They were doing a weekend workshop up in the woods somewhere that Keith Johnstone was leading. So I took that. That was the one and only time I met him, but it was really exciting. I bet it was. I bet it was. That is so cool. So let's move to Story Spine because I want to know how you did it. And I think I shared with you maybe that when I use it for people with Parkinson's, I have each beginning sentence on um plastic cards that they can read easily oh that's wonderful yeah the flashcards i call them but let me hear about the adventure the story of how you came up with story spine yeah well i was um so i was in i, I was in nyu at the time right taking that musical theater program and studying playwriting and um one of the books that i read was this wonderful book called playwriting how to write for the theater it was written back in 1950s or so by this fellow named Bernard Grabanier. And, and I learned a lot about play structure and playwriting that I never knew before from reading this book. So that was happening. At the same time, I was in um, theater sports New York and I was learning how to improvise theater sports. And because I was so interested in playwriting, it occurred to me right away that um, wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of just improvising a two minute or a three minute scene and then the lights come out on the biggest joke, what if it continued? Like, is it possible to improvise a full length play rather than a short scene? And now that seems like a very obvious thought, but back in the day, back in 89, nobody was doing that. It just, it wasn't a thing yet. 
And so it wasn't like there were any models to look at. So I was doing that, I was doing that. And then at the same time through Theater Sports New York, I was working on a, a playwriting residency with a bunch of middle school kids. And that's been another thing that's been a real part of my life that I always love, which is teaching theater and teaching writing to children through various after-school programs and such like that. So I was teaching this playwriting program to these middle school kids while at the same time working with Freestyle, uh, with Theater Sports New York and asking them if they might want to experiment with me and learn how to improvise a full-length play. And I had read that book that I mentioned. And what I really needed was a, a tool for the kids to outline their plays. And I couldn't find one. So that is how I literally invented the story spine. I, I, I created that so that I can use it not as an improv game at first, but as a tool for these middle school kids to outline a story that they would then turn into a play in our playwriting class. As soon as I did that, though, I realized, oh, this would be awesome uh, for helping us learn story structure in improvisation as well. So I brought it right back into Theater Sports New York. This was like in 1990, this was all happening. Oh, and we started you, using that. Can you tell me your process a little bit as you're teaching this, this method, this form? Um, the, the process for improvising a full-length play? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, uh, absolutely. So the story spine is actually a simplified version of a slightly more elaborate model that we use when we are approaching um, improvising a full-length play. So the story spine is once upon a time, every day, but one day, because of that, because of that, because of that, until finally, and ever since then, right? You use those first parts of the sentence and then you improvise or you write the second, and it helps you understand beginning, middle, and an end and how one transitions to the other. And that's what well-constructed plays do. They have beginnings, middles, and ends. Um, in, in a full-length play, there are a couple of other dramatic landmarks along the way that help us figure out when we have transitioned from the beginning into the middle, from the middle into the second half of the middle, and then towards the end. So what my approach is, is to help the people who I'm working with understand dramatic structure. You could look at thousands of great plays and movies and books and they all do this. And so it's not that I invented this, it's that um, with the help of that fellow who wrote that book, Bernard Grebanier, where I learned a lot of this from, I, I was able to look at all of these stories and see, okay, I get it. All of these plays do this and that's how it turns into a fulfilling dramatic whole. So. We study that, we study the dramatic structure, and then we practice improvising in such a way so that we can discover that dramatic structure in the course of our spontaneous exploration of our character's needs. Well, I'd like to take a class. I would really like to- <laughs> Please do, I'd love yeah. you to do that. Yeah, the t your times are a little difficult for me here I know. on the coast, but uh, I was looking at the catalog again. I'm really endorsing your classes and the other classes synergy so people can study these great things. Um, so well, you're not much of a Spolin person because there's kind of a divide sometimes between Johnstone and Spolin. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. I, I feel a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but I improvised for quite a long time without even knowing who Viola Spolin was. The name just didn't come up. 
Um, you know, Johnstone was the source that we went to. And again, back in the day when I was learning all of this, it wasn't like we had such easy access to information. The internet wasn't a thing yet. You know, I couldn't go online to my Facebook group and talk to all of these improvisers all over the world. It, it just wasn't anything like that. So you pretty much learned from the 15 or 20 people in your community. And that was it. How else would you know anything unless you traveled a great deal, of course, which back then I was not able to do. So I grew up improvising and it wasn't until, you know, I was, well, I don't know, probably eight, nine years into improvising before I really started to hear Viola Spolin. And then I made that connection with Paul Sills and Story Theater. So then I went out and started learning a lot about her. But but you're right, Viola Spolin was not the, the guru that whose wisdom I, I had when I was first learning. Although, of, of course, there are many, many things in common. Viola Spolin has a very wonderful approach towards improvisation. Um, but ultimately, it really does all boil down to, you know, be spontaneous, make your partner look good and build on your partner's ideas. That's the art. And everybody has their own way of dressing that up and their own focus areas and terminology. But it really all boils down to that. Be in the moment and build on what your partner just did. Absolutely. And um, there's many schools of improv now. You've got I.O., or you did have, I think Io was coming back again. And, um, you know, you had the whole Del Close kind of thing. And did you ever study in Chicago at all? Or did you go from Brooklyn to LA or San Francisco? Yeah, no, no, I never did. I, I spent uh, my life in Brooklyn up to the age of 33. And then I moved out here to the San Francisco Bay Area in California. And uh, I, I will tell you, I will admit this if, if it, um, shames me publicly, then I will be shamed. But the truth is, like I said, I was not really very exposed to or cognizant of other famous and important improv schools and movements. I didn't really know much about the Chicago world of improv. I recognize that that's like the big mecca of improvisation. I know that now, but I didn't know that then. When I was in New York, for 10 years with Freestyle Repertory Theater, we just did our thing. I just wanted to make up plays. And improvisation was something I learned in this one place. And I learned to do it from it in a way that seemed satisfactory. Like it didn't seem like anything was missing. So I just, I just kept doing that. It really wasn't until I came out here and I started meeting people who came from different communities and then online that I realized that there is such a huge world of uh, improvisational approaches and philosophies. Like for a long time, I was very, I was, I was very surprised when I finally realized that not every improviser in the world wants to improvise full-length plays. There are improvisers who don't find that particularly satisfying, or or sometimes who don't even consider that what they would consider pure improvisation. People have very, very particular um, feelings about how one should improvise and what pure improvisation is and what the results should be and what the method should be. Um, and I didn't know any of that. And it was really, it's been really exciting over the past like five or six years, especially to be exposed on the internet to all of these different people and all of their different ideas and thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's been incredible. Uh, your energy is very exciting and oh, captivating, Ken. So um, sometimes I play a game with a guest while we're interviewing each other, or I'm interviewing, you're not interviewing me, but I'm a great topic of inspiration, I gotta tell you that. So anyway, um, 
But I was thinking about doing a game, and we could do story, story spine, which of course I have memorized. Um, I'm sure. That's, you want to do that now? Do you get any endowments or gets or anything like that when you do story spine, or you just go for it? Um, yeah, I usually don't, but uh, there's I don't no need reason one. why one can't. Yeah, no. Uh, you want to just start with a Once Upon a Time? Yeah. Go ahead. Why don't you kick it off then? Okay. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Susie, and more than anything in the world, she wanted a dog. Every day, she would go to the pet store and stare in the window at this beautiful terrier and have a small tear roll down her cheek. But one day, she got enough money to buy this beautiful dog, and she brought it home so her parents could enjoy it. Because of that, her parents were surprised because they didn't give her permission for that dog. Because of that, they said, Susie, you have to take that dog back. Because of that, Susie packed a bag, took the dog and ran away. Because of that, she went to New York where they started a dog act. <laughs> uh, because of that, they became internationally famous. And because of that, she just gave her parents a beautiful house with 10 dogs to live in. Until finally, her parents realized they were very wrong and remorseful for disallowing the dog. And ever since then, Susie and her parents have lived happily ever after <laughs> with multiple dogs in their beautiful home. Oh, excellent job, <laughs> excellent job. Uh, you know, something the story spine taps into that's been a topic on my mind lately. Uh, we've been having some conversations about it on our Facebook uh, talk group is this concept of doing two things at the same time when you're improvising. One is being in the moment and playing the character. And the other is writing the play. And like I was saying, there, there are some people who object very strongly to the concept of writing when you're improvising because it implies thinking and planning and editing. But the truth is, you, you do need to do both of those things. This is my philosophy anyway, right? You, you need to make a story that has a beginning and a middle and an end that is going to be compelling to the audience. And you need to be living the story at the same time as the character. And so that's the real magic for me of improvisation. It is this beautiful experiment of doing both of those things at the same time and watching that the character live the story spontaneously as a really well-told story is crafted with purpose. And I find that just scintillating. And yeah. I can't imagine a more exciting way of creating theater. Right. Well, you know, a lot of TV shows, I, like Larry David, I guess, and some other ones, they are even, I don't know if it was Jerry Seinfeld, but they would improvise before they'd write the show. Um, but I had a friend that was on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he tried improvising a line, and Larry David said, um, excuse me, I want you to say this. <laughs> this reminds me, you, we, you mentioned the idea of famous improvisers. You know, the improv community is big worldwide, but in terms of fame, we know who these great people are, but the average person hasn't heard of Keith Johnstone or Viola Spallen. I mean, we're in our own huge community now. Now, which I'm grateful for COVID for exposing me to all these wonderful people and classes. I've taken more classes in the past two and a half years than I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Enjoy them so much. Yeah. You know, the advent of whose line is it anyway on television 
um, I think was a, a mixed blessing because I think if not for whose line is it anyway on television, improvisation probably would still not be the household name that it is now. Like everybody in the world really knows about improvisation now. Every high school has a team, every college has a team. And yeah. I don't think that was true before whose line is it anyway came to television and showed everybody improvisation and brought it into your living room. So that's the upside. For, for me, the bittersweet part of that is that it is one very particular take on improvisation. And right. you know, it's very gamey, it's very sticky. It doesn't really um, demand real characters and, and real stories. So the idea that improvisation can be something else other than that, I think has suffered because whose line it is, is it anyway, has for a while anyway, had become the definition of improvisation. Exactly. And there was so much jokey. Um, and I totally agree with you on that. And we can have dramatic improv. I love dramatic improv. I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's always been my approach from the very beginning, which is why I was so surprised when I met other improvisers who didn't think this way. You know, you grow up in your little silo and that's what you think. But for my money, improvisation has always been just a way to make a play. And just like all plays are not comedic, all pieces of improvisation need not be comedic. And just like all comedies have other levels of emotional reality in them. Comedies have poignancy and drama. So too can improvisation do all of these things. If you can write it, you can improvise it. And to equate improv with something other than theater, I think is sad. And I've actually had people say that to me. Like there are people who really think of improv as like some different type of art form than theater. Whereas I think of improv as uh, as a method, as opposed to the product. Improv is the way to create theater, but what you are creating is theater. And yes. that requires yes. acting and writing and directing. Yes, absolutely. It really does. And I love acting. I, I got an improv kind of old, um, but 12 years ago, and I just love characters. And I also love the mindfulness that's involved because you have to be here now. You can't be doing a laundry list. You can't be thinking about something. You got to be in the moment and be in the moment with your scene partner or partners. And that's delightful, I think. Yes, there, there is a real wonderful connection, I think, between improvisation and mindfulness and mindful meditation. And <laughs> I am not disciplined enough to meditate mindfully, so I can't claim that. But but I do acknowledge that if you do that, it will probably help you be a better improviser if you have a very strong mindful meditation practice in your life. Yeah, I, I kind of think so. So who are some of your favorite playwrights? You were reading, were you reading plays at an early age? Yeah, I was always very intrigued by the theater. And like I said, I, my initial passion was as a playwright. And for me, my, my favorite type of theater, and probably still to this day, I would say so, is farce. And so I grew up just absolutely loving Moliere. He I was, was just thinking Moliere, yeah. Moliere. Moliere. Um, when I became, when I started improvising and I started learning all about the Commedia dell'arte, which of course were improvised around scenarios back in the day, um, that was another beautiful coming together of two things that I loved so much because those scenarios were usually farces and they were improvised. Um, I, I, I loved Shakespeare as, uh, not as a little kid, but when I got into high school and I, I was 
old enough for someone to teach me why Shakespeare is great. I was able to appreciate that. Um, and Shakespeare's comedies, you know, like the comedy of errors. I, I loved, I, I was always very fascinated with intricate plotting. And that's one of the reasons I loved farce so much because it would seem as if the plot was wildly out of control, like, like runaway horses racing down the canyon with the wagon behind them. But in fact, it was meticulously plotted. And at the end, when everything comes together and you realize that every piece of um, wildness that happened in the beginning was very much on purpose by the playwright because they were going to brilliantly bring it all together to solve the problem at the end. I just found that fascinating. I found that moment of the theater where you see the pieces coming together and you realize, oh my goodness, that's going to happen. And then it does. So that, that that's why I have always been so fascinated with this process of improvising a play because that's what it's all about. It, it's about figuring out the pieces of the puzzle as you are create, as you are putting it together. And um, can you be brilliant enough to play a great character, be a good enough actor to be in the moment, but at the same time, be constructing this puzzle, which comes together so beautifully and with such satisfaction at the end. Yeah, I saw a discussion with some improvisers on Facebook about that idea. And some people were like, no, no, you don't play right, blah, blah, blah. Um, have you, I, I saw a wonderful improvised Shakespeare in Chicago many years ago. Have you done improvised Shakespeare? Yeah, we perform in different styles and genres. And one of our uh, most favorite, or at least one of my most favorite genres is Shakespeare. I, I love Shakespeare. I love reading it. And I love performing in the style of William Shakespeare. I think the only Shakespeare I can think of right now is thou loins or purloined or something like that. <laughs> I don't know, but I love Shakespeare. And I think it's just such a creative and talented thing to do, um, improvise Shakespeare. And I know you do different genres and another favorite genre of mine is film noir. Yeah, we do film noir as well. In fact, Thursday, in a couple of days, we're opening up our spontaneous Hitchcock show. And that is not yes. film noir, uh, at least the shade of Hitchcock that we're taking is not film noir, but we do do film noir and Hitchcock has a number of things in common with it. Um, oh yes, I, I love the film noir genre as well. For me, anything that takes us out of the modern day and time, I find exciting because one of the things I love so much about theater, whether it's improvised or written, is the idea of using metaphor and symbolism. Yes. And for me personally, when you're improvising in a different time and place, it, it allows for that very organically. So because uh, you know a metaphor, right, is a substitution. It's this stands for this. So by pulling yourself out of the real time and place in which you live, you're, you're already in some place different. And then it is easy, not easy, but it is, it is organic for that different place you're in to become a metaphor for the real world you left behind. Right. Uh, I uh, noticed that you're a fan of Joseph Campbell and the Hero oh, yeah. Thousand Faces. Can you tell me a little bit about your work and experience using Campbell? Yeah, well, um, storytelling and plotting has always been my passion. So it was through improvisation that I learned about Joseph Campbell when I was with Freestyle Repertory Theater back in New York. Um, there was this uh, fellow in the company, his name is Hugh Sinclair, lovely guy, great talented improviser. And, and he was very 
interested in Joseph Campbell. And I remember he was the first one who brought into one of our rehearsals Joseph Campbell's monomyth structure, or what more people call the hero's journey, which is Joseph Smith, who is, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph Campbell, <laughs> not Joseph Smith. That's a whole other story. Uh, Joseph Campbell was a uh, a famous mythologist, right? And, and he traveled the world and he studied myths and he discovered what they all had in common. That, that is uh, similar to my play structure, the, the story spine and the play structure that I teach, not, not the mythology model, but the idea of not coming up with something of your own invention and saying, this is how one should do it, but rather looking at how people have done it for thousands of years and discovering what they all have in common. So that's how the play structure comes. You look at all the great plays in the world and they all have this in common, or you look at all the mythologies of the world and there are pieces that they all have in common. So he put together his monomyth and it's a wonderful structure that one could use to base a story around. And of course, filmmakers have famously been doing this for 30 years now, or uh, 40 years now, uh, and uh, starting very famously with Luke, uh, George Lucas. Uh, uh, George yes. Lucas was a friend uh, and student of Joseph Campbell. And so Star Wars is, um, uh, he admits, is based very strongly on this um, model of storytelling from Joseph Campbell's um, monomyth, as he calls it. Yeah, just brilliant. I just love it. I love his work. Now, have you studied much psychology? Because there is certainly psychology in the theater. Yeah, there certainly is. And the answer is no, to be uh, completely honest. I have not studied it. I, I love the idea of it. And anytime I read about it or anytime I get into a discussion about it, it's fascinating. And of course, theater, in addition to being about story, is about the people who are in those stories. And, and you can't tell a good story, I don't think, without a keen understanding of human psychology and what motivates us to behave the way we behave. So uh, I, you know, I, I am drawn to psychology on that level because it is such a necessary aspect of theater creation. Yeah, well, Carly Young was very important in his ideas and also the term collective unconscious, which is, kind of like mind meld, I think. Can you define mind meld, what it is to you? Um, well, I uh, <laughs> let me see. Um, I, I think perhaps it's what I would use the phrase group mind to mean. Yes. I'm not sure if we're talking about the same yes, thing yes. yet. Uh, in which case it is that magical moment when you are improvising with an ensemble where everyone in the ensemble has the same idea at the same time without having to communicate that verbally. Yeah, I think that's a great definition. And I think that's a, a wonderful term because, and that's also when we use metaphors or the hero's journey characters, because it's that collective unconscious that everybody can relate to. You may not have had that job or been in that situation or experienced something, not to be able to empathize with what's going on on stage. You don't yeah. always have to identify with it, but you empathize with it. And that is the richness of our art form of improvisation, I think. Yeah, I agree. And of course, um, the Jungian archetypes are very connected to Joseph Campbell's monomyth because um, the, the characters that people the myths are Jungian archetypes. So Joseph Campbell speaks about that quite a lot. So you have uh, the god father, the goddess mother, the devil, the hero, the innocent, the, 
the enchantress, all of these archetypes that come from our collective unconscious, according to Jung, um, which allow those myths to be so relevant and profound generation after generation after generation, because they really are aspects of our own personalities that we are helping to understand and integrate by putting them in stories. Exactly. Now, when you do um, the uh, actual stories and dramas, do you use props and costumes? Uh, yeah, my vision is that when people walk into an improvised performance, they should see the greatest piece of theater they've ever seen. Not the greatest piece of improvised theater, but the greatest piece of theater. Just like if you were writing a play and producing it, you would want it to be the best piece of theater the audience ever saw. If you are improvising a play or when I am improvising a play and pre presenting it to a, an audience, especially one who's paying money to come and see it, then it should be the best piece of theater the audience ever saw. That should be the goal for every performance. And for my money, costumes and props add to that. If, if that's the vision, right? Costumes and props add to that. Now, if you're doing something like story theater, the whole point of which is not to have costumes and props, then that's excellent too, but that's a choice. And, and we do something like that. In fact, one of our styles is Spontaneous Brothers Grimm, which is in the style of the Grimm's Brothers fairy tales. And we modeled it after story theater. So everybody was wearing like these, um, you know, like these sweatsuits, um, so no no uh, character costumes, but we had some masks and things hanging on pegs that we could pull off. But the the ensemble played all of the props. So if we needed a table, two people would run and become the table. If we needed a cliff, <laughs> right, or a mountain, and then we climb on each other's backs and all of that kind of stuff. So like that doesn't require props or costumes, but not because it's improvised and we didn't think we deserve any. It's because the style of theater that we were creating purposefully wanted the audience to use their imaginations rather than see props and costumes. But if you're doing a play like a film noir, then why not dress in the period and have all of the props that would go along with that? I think that just makes theater theater. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. But I also love object work and movement and, um, and especially the give and take that we see in improvised shows, the give and take that of the real, of a good improvised show is so important. But I think the silence is really an important factor that a lot of people miss. They want to respond right away or react. Yeah, as I've mentioned a few times now, we're working on Hitchcock. So one of the skills we're working on is building suspense. And the way we're practicing doing that is by allowing silences in between your partner's offer and your own. So, so if somebody says, how did you get in here? You know, the instinct is to answer right away, but it's very, very powerful not to answer. How did you get in here? And just stare at that person and let the silence grow and increase the tension and the danger. And that is a real skill that we had to, that we had to practice because we're not used to doing that. That's true. Um, I wanted to get back to something, but now I can't remember what it was. This is <laughs> occasional memory slips. Huh? So, oh, I know what it was. You've traveled around the world and taught in different cities. Um, um, I have not traveled extensively around the world to teach. I've, I've taught in a couple of different cities around the country, but 
but no, in fact, extensive travel, unfortunately, has not been a privilege of mine. Oh, I, I, I thought I saw that you went to Poland. Is that incorrect? No, not yet, huh? Not yet. But my original ancestors are from Poland. So perhaps that's where you came up with that idea. That's exactly what I was visualizing, your family in Poland and yes. track across to Brooklyn, New York, you know? Yeah, and all, all the story spines they would play on the boat in order to pass the time. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, living in, I was living in Manhattan for, during the 70s, and I just wish I'd known about improv then because David Shepard was doing his thing, and I love his work as well. Um, yes, all, all of the storied history of improvisation is very exciting. And now, thankfully, there are lots of resources out there and documentaries and pictures from the day. And people have saved um, photographs and newspaper clippings. The really lovely thing about this, too, is that it wasn't so long ago that everybody from it is gone from us. There are lots of people who studied with Viola Spolin and who saw those original story theater productions. And they're here alive on Facebook and you can talk with them and they have pictures. And of course their names are all escaping me at the moment, but I encourage everybody to go on Facebook and just join these improv communities. Um, Synergy Theater has a chat group called Talk About Improv with Synergy Theater. Oh. And, and a lot of these people are, are on that, um, but, it is so easy now to connect with people who really have long, impressive, luminous careers in improvisation and who have met with and worked with all of the famous people you've heard about. Go out there and find them and talk to them. They're accessible and they're fascinating. I have to say, that's one of the things I've been doing. For example, Ed Greenberg was with The Compass in San Francisco. Is it the compass? I think so. And worked worked with Dale Close before Dale Close began doing a lot of other things. So I've done a, a bit of history and I've interviewed Carol Sills, Paul Sills' wife, and actually took a class with her last summer on story theater. Oh so, yeah? Yeah. So How was that? Uh it was wonderful. It was a great experience. Now some of them had actually worked with Viola, okay? Um and uh, it was a fun experience and I was there for a week and we did a performance at the end and I believe I know it well enough to teach it to some uh, third graders I'm going to be working with later this year because it will provide so much in terms of learning language and coming out of their shells and having fun. So I and Grimm Brothers are a great source. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that spontaneous Brothers Grimm that we did, that was definitely one of my favorite styles. It really knocked us out of our traditional way of operating because, um, you know, it, it involves narration, dialogue, and so much physical work, which is, you know, not, not the way we usually think when we start improvising a scene. Absolutely. The physical is so important, too. Yeah. Really, and and the gestures and the expression, the facial expressions. You know, one of the benefits of teaching people with Parkinson's improv is they get rigid face muscles. So we do a lot of work with our faces and emotions to help stretch those. So oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. So, um, gosh, 
This has been so much fun. I can't believe it. I'm having so much fun with you. Oh, thank I you. Um, really enjoy it. And um, I actually found an interview where you discussed the uh, um, story spine. And I've been sending that out to some of my students as well. It's really oh, delightful. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm really flattered. I might put that link in the in this uh, in the text that I write for chat as well. Now it's not going to be out before Thursday, so that will have been an event that passed your Hitchcock. But I know there's other things coming up that are going to be really cool. Yeah, in fact, the Hitchcock show runs for two weekends, so we go from October 20th to October 30th. Okay, well maybe I can get this out quickly then. Oh, please do. That would be wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate the mention. Well, thank you, Ken Adams. This has been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me early afternoon for you in the morning. I appreciate you getting up nice and early to talk with me today. And um, do you have any advice for people that are interested in improv and playwriting? Um, uh, I, I do. And, and I, I think the, the advice is for, for one thing is make sure you study improvisation go out there and take classes and learn from people and just practice it and i think my advice is that we we need not think of those two as separate things i i like to think of improvisation as a larger word with a big capital i and in order to be an improviser with a big capital i you need to be at least four things you need to be an improviser with a lowercase i meaning you need to know how to improvise but you also need to be a playwright a director and an actor and each of those other things are areas that people spend lifetimes trying to master right david mamet probably didn't spend a lot of time trying to be an improviser and a uh, an actor and a director right he spent his lifetime becoming a master playwright but if you want to be a master improviser then you need to be four things an improviser a playwright an actor and a director and you need to study those things with the respect and integrity that they deserve well, that's just beautiful. Well, Ken, I hope to be uh, taking a class with you eventually. Uh, I got to offer him a little earlier Pacific time for me. And uh, it's been such a delight to talk with you and your contributions to improv. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here today. Oh, great pleasure and honor. Thank you. Thank you. Um...